You know, and there's times in life we've all had role models. Maybe we've been mentored in a, in a position in a place, of place where we worked. Maybe it's been in sports. Maybe it's been in education or in the arts. You know, we have role models. In fact, some people put their role models up on the wall. They put their post posters and placards and, and things on the wall to, uh, you know, in a, in a sense, look up to their role models. Well, what we have in this chapter, in this delightful chapter, it's a chapter that's not only delightful, but it's challenging to us, it's encouraging to us, is we have three faithful servants that are set before us as role models. And those three servants are a reflection of what we studied already in verse 5, where it says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And it goes on to tell us about the Lord Jesus' sacrificial service that he offered to us because he became a man, he went to the cross in order to rescue us and to serve our needs and to deliver us from, from eternal hell and from the clutches of this present evil world. He gave us all for us. And we're told in this passage, let, our, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And what we see in these three role models is the mind of the Lord Jesus, the heart of the Lord Jesus expressed in service towards others in life. We find, we saw first of all, in our reading, this, this heart of the Lord Jesus described for us in Matthew 20 and 28, where it says, just as a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. You know, when the, the Jews at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ was expecting a king to come into the glory, one who, who was worthy of praise and should be served. But he came on a humble manner, did he not? And he come in a manger in Bethlehem. He came to serve our needs. And it's that heart, that love of him, love of the Lord Jesus that put himself under your needs and mine that, that he puts on display in these three examples he gives us. First of all, we see Paul in verse 17 of this chapter being poured out as a drink offering. The example of one who was giving their all for Christ. In verse 19, we are introduced to Timothy, one who will sincerely care for your state. I call that the believer on spiritual autopilot in a service for Christ. And thirdly, we come to Epaphroditus, one who was unselfish in his commitment to serving Christ because he did not regard his life in his service for Christ. And these three set before us this morning are tremendous examples of what God would develop in each of us as we learn of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his mind and his heart in our lives. So the first one we come to in verse 17 is Paul. He said he was poured out as a drink offering. He also mentions this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. And so what's a drink offering? Well, I just read one verse to you from Numbers 29, verse 6. It's mentioned, the drink offering is mentioned throughout the Old Testament. It accompanied the other offerings, sometimes called a libation. It says this in Numbers 29, 6. Besides the burnt offering with its grain offering for the new moon, the regular burnt offering with its grain offering, and their drink offerings according to their ordinance as a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. And we find that kind of language throughout the, the, the Mosaic Law, especially the idea of offering a drink offering. It, it accompanied the, the, the animal sacrifices and the other offerings made to the Lord. And he says here that he's being poured out like that drink offering, like the one that accompanies the sacrifice. And ultimately, the ultimate sacrifice was the Lord Jesus Christ. He, is, he said, I am the sacrifice that complements the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ but he says here in verse 17, I'm being poured out on this, on this sacrifice and service of your faith. And what he's saying here is he recognizes that the believers in Philippi were serving Christ. 
They were sacrificing and service. Those two words go together, don't they? Sacrifice and service, because that's what service is. It's a sacrifice. It is giving up some portion of our lives, whether it's time, money, focused, whatever it is, in order to meet the needs of others, as God leads and calls us to. And Paul says, recognizes they had been serving sacrificially. And that may have been a, sp a specific reference, if you look at chapter 4, verse 18, to their ministry to Paul, where he says, in verse 18 of chapter 4, Indeed, I have all in abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice while pleasing to God. And so they had supported Paul in some way, whether financially, by way of needs. They had supported Paul, and Paul thanked him here, in essence, for that, because they had given sacrificially to the service of the gospel by supporting Paul. And, and what he says here, going back to chapter 2, he says, I'm poured out upon your sacrifice. He recognizes that. And then he mentions this rejoicing. I am glad and rejoice with you all. And for the same reason, you'd be glad and rejoice with me. And there's a whole lot of two-way rejoicing going on here, isn't there? They're rejoicing together that Christ is being preached, that he is being served, that people are getting saved and people are growing in Christ. They're serving together. That's what Paul says. My part is to, be, is to serve your faith is to support your sacrifice. And he, as an apostle, was teaching them, training them, being an example to them. Because, but he recognizes that he wasn't over them. His role is just to help them, support them. In verse 7 of chapter 1, he says this, in the introduction of this book, he says, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of me of grace. He says, yes, I'm here to defend and confirm the gospel, the good news that Christ died, was buried, and rose again, but you're partakers with me of this grace. In other words, it's a privilege to be enabled by God to be a witness for Christ, to be a, be a servant of Christ. And Paul says, you're partakers with me. And, pa and Paul says, my job is to help you along in that endeavor. And so they rejoice together. And that kind of gives a clue to what should be the nature of Christian fellowship in the church. It should be a rejoicing together that we can serve Christ together, that we can share gospel concerns. You know, one of the objectives of having a prayer meeting on Wednesday night is so that we can pray for each other's ministry, our gospel outreaches, our service to the needs of our neighbors and friends and family and community. And so we come together and say, hey, this person has a need, this person has a need, this person needs to be saved. And we come together because we rejoice together, because we have a redemptive objective of reaching the lost for Christ and encouraging the saved. And so we come together to share gospel concerns and pray gospel objectives and rejoicing that God is at work. That's what should temper our fellowship together, isn't it? That mind of Christ, that heart of Christ that is, that is, that is exhibited through his servants and a desire to reach souls, to help people, to lift them up and see them rise above this present evil world. And that kind of service and sacrifice, notice in this passage, you may have noticed that it's called a sweet aroma. It was in the Old Testament. Paul called it the same thing in chapter 4. It's a sweet aroma in the nostrils of God. You know, the Old Testament sacrifices are often called a sweet aroma. And there may have been things such as the meal offerings and the drink offerings that had an aromatic value to them, but burnt flesh on an altar does not have, is not a sweet aroma, isn't it? So God's not talking about the physical senses, is he? He's talking about the spiritual senses. Because in that sacrifice the, on the altar, sins were dealt with in the Old Testament. Sins were covered. 
pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who would take away the sins of the world, who offered one sacrifice for sins forever, settled the sin question once and for all and forever by paying for all sins upon the Christ, was a sweet aroma in the mind, in the heart, in the mind and heart of God because sins have been dealt with. His people are right with him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that aroma, that idea of a sweet aroma was extended to sacrificial service in life, isn't it? The Philippians' service was a sweet aroma. And, and that's because in the New Testament, in our Christian living, we're to be the sacrifice, aren't we? Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service. Why is it reasonable? Well, because we're God's created being, it's reasonable to serve him. He wrote the instruction book. He knows the, the greatest fulfillment in life is found in serving Christ. That's what we're designed for. He's our redeemer. He purchased us through his blood on the cross. And therefore, we ought to live for him. It's reasonable. But it tells us here in that reasonable service to be a living sacrifice. We are the ones to give our all for him. And that's what this drink offering pictures. Paul says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. I'm giving my all, all for Christ. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I couldn't help but think of this passage. It's, it's a favorite passage of mine, introduces a glor uh, glorious passage on sacrificial service in the next several chapters, but cha it starts out with verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 2. It says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. And so he turns to this spiritual aromatic effect that we are to have on people. He says, it's through us, Christ in us diffuses the fragrance of him. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, to the other the aroma of life leading to life, and who is sufficient for these things. And so we're to be an aroma of Christ. And that's a choice we have to make. If we're going to have the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, we can choose to live for ourselves, to serve Christ kind of on our terms when it's convenient, and carry the stench of the world, or we can be the sweet aroma of Christ as we allow his heart, his mind, to be exhibited in us as God is exampling before us in Philippians chapter 2 as, we, as we're poured out in loving service for him. So going back to Philippians 2, Paul says, I'm being poured out. That's my role, to give sacrificially, to give my all. You know, and the cup of the drink offering was to be emptied wasn't it? It was to be all poured out. It was just, you know, it wasn't just, it wasn't just a, a few drops, a little bit of a, a portion. It was poured out. It was emptied. You know, it was deliberate because it was a picture. There was to be nothing left because for you and I, there was no portion of our lives that is to be reserved for ourselves. We're not here to live for ourselves. We're to live for him who died for us and rose again. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's, the, that's the, the mindset of the Christian. That's what Paul is describing here. I'm being poured out. I'm giving my all in service for Christ. And so as Christians, we either, we either die to self and live holy for Christ or we serve Jesus unreservedly. 
and we serve Jesus unreservedly, or we serve him on our terms and at our convenience. And I didn't see in any, any of Jesus' call in the Old Te- New Testament that he, when he called his disciples to say, follow me when you have time. Follow me at your convenience. Follow me in your disposable time. Did he? He said, follow me. That indication of giving our all, isn't it? And that's because as Christians, as those who have trusted Christ as a Savior, we recognize he is Lord. He's master. He's our creator. He's our head. And so we walk by faith. We sang that song. We walk by faith and we rest in that. Because one thing about abandoning ourselves to Jesus wholly, to giving our all for him, is our, as our flesh starts sending off alarms in our brain, risk, 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 what about this, what about that, what about the other thing? Because we like to have control. And to give ourselves wholly to Jesus is to give that control to him. But what better hands could we be in? Because we rest completely in his care. We follow where he leads. We go where he sends. And we're empowered by his grace. It's really the only way Christians are to live. That's what Paul says here. Now, we may not all be wandering the world as missionaries like the Apostle Paul, but we can wander across the street and down the road to our friends and neighbors as God leads and directs because we belong to him. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, with my whole heart have I sought you, let me not wander from your commandments. You know, in the Bible, service is called sacrificial. But in reality, when you're captured by the heart of Christ, the mind of Christ, the love of Christ, it's a privilege. The world might think it's a sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice when we know that the path down which God leads is absolutely the most fulfilling and rewarding one that can be lived. It becomes a privilege, not a sacrifice. It's only a sacrifice from a fleshly perspective. It's a privilege, even though it might involve rigor and hardship and suffering. So there is that, I suppose, element of sacrifice. But it's a privilege to be make a difference in people's lives. And so this is the first role model God lays before us. The example of being poured out, of giving our all for the things of Christ. The second one we come to in verse 19 is Timothy. I call him the believer on spiritual autopilot. And here we find in these verses 19 through 24 quite a high commendation for one who was young and maybe somewhat timid by nature. That's kind of how he's known. If you look at Paul's encouragements in his letters to Timothy, that Paul encourages them repeatedly to be strong and to be faithful and to endure. And he didn't have that by nature. And yet Paul gives them quite a, quite a commendation here. Paul wanted to send Timothy to them in order to ensure that the believers are spiritual healthy, that they were serving Christ and growing in their faith, and that brings him joy and encouragement in, in seeing believers live faithfully. But he says of Timothy, and he says in verse 20, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for, his, for your state. Other versions, the word sincerely, other versions use the word genuinely care or genuinely concerned. But I really like the old King James in this one, personally, where it said naturally care. I think that captures it in some ways the best. Because that's what he's talking about, who will naturally care for your state. Someone who is going to automatically, naturally step up to minister to a needs. These are a reality that existed in Timothy. He's talking about Timothy's person. This is something he had by nature. This is something Timothy had grown in. It's, the, it's verse 5. It's the mind of Christ developed in him by the Spirit of God. That had been become, become part of Timothy's person. And, 
And Timothy was one who Paul knew would always step up to meet a spiritual need. One who always acted. You know, I've seen through the years people in ministry that when you have opportunities to serve, you know who's going to come up and say, I'll do it. You know those who are going to show up at a hospital, those who are going to write a nice note, those who are going to contact people, visit people, because they've, because they've been captured by the heart of Christ. And, the, and, and, and that drives them. Now, Timothy wasn't perfect. He's not, Paul's not saying that. But his normal reaction was to step up to meet a need. And without being asked, without being coerced, and to do it without reservations, and to allow his own needs and schedule to be laid aside and not keep them from serving as God called. And that's the compassion of the Lord Jesus. And I always said, when you find the compassion of the Lord Jesus in scriptures, it, always it is always a tied to an action. Compassion always finds feet. The love of Christ does. You know, a lot of us, you know, we hear about a need and someone's in, a, in, in have a hard time. We say, okay, we'll pray for you. You know, maybe we do, maybe we don't. There's not always an opportunity to do something physically, and that's not always necessary, but when there was, Timothy stepped up. Because I don't know of anybody like him who would naturally, automatically, I know he'll do, the, do what God intends, express the heart of Christ. And sometimes that's all people want. Some people are timid about that kind of service, reaching out to people. Because what do I say? What do I do? I can barely keep my life together. How in the world can I help someone else's? When really all people want to see is, is, your, is your smile. I want, you to want them to hold, your hand, hold their hand. Know you care. God doesn't call you to go preach a sermonette. He just wants you to love them, care about them, see how you can be a servant and help and uphold them and lift them up. And what you often find, especially in other believers, you find a believer who's already, who knows the answers, who knows the promises of God, who may be trusting in the sovereign hand of a, of a loving and caring God, and you come away encouraged. And so you encourage one another in love, does it, do you not? Timothy was that kind of person. And Paul just goes, describes him here in, by way of a, a couple of, by not only, by a couple of descriptions. First of all, he says there's no one like-minded. That's how he describes this believer on spiritual autopilot. The ESV says, I have no one like him. The New American Standard Version says, I have no one else of kindred spirit. Now, I don't think this is necessarily referring to doctrine here, because sometimes when you think of like-minded, we think of the same beliefs, the same doctrinal framework. Well, that may be true. In this context, he's talking about service, isn't he? I have no one who's going to serve like Paul had learned to serve. He said, I have no one. Timothy was one who lived life with internal perspective and a redemptive objective, and that ruled his life. Not his personal objectives and wants and needs. It was the things of Christ he, that he served. And what an asset for Paul to have a man like that. Someone shoulder to shoulder who he knew had the same perspective towards life and objective in life that he had. The same objective that God has to reach others for Christ. And it's not that these men totally neglected their own physical, personal responsibilities, but these responsibilities had the right priority, level of priority in life. That's what that means. And so Paul had one who would sincerely, genuinely, and naturally serve the needs around him. And it's also not only described here as being like-minded, it's contrasted when Paul says, 
for all seek their own, in verse 21, not the things which are Christ Jesus. Now, he's talking about Christians here. He's not talking about the unsaved. We can't expect the unsaved to seek the things of God, to serve the things of God. They need to get saved to become a child of God before they can work for God. He's talking about Christians. I guess Paul didn't pull punches here, did he? He's definitely not being politically correct or diplomatic here. And there may have been some who shut the letter after they read that statement because the Word of God always puts us at a point of decision, doesn't it? This is tragic, something that ought not to be true. And it makes us wonder, which description do we fit in as a person? How do I live my days? Where do I fit in these two categories that Paul uses to describe the faithful service of Timothy? And as I said, the Bible has that way to bring in us to that point of decision. For the lost, for those who do not know Christ, don't know they're going to heaven, it's the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Those who believe on him are not condemned, but those who believe not are condemned already because they have not believed. When a person confronts the, the person of Christ and really understands what God was seeking to accomplish through the Lord Jesus Christ and sending him to the cross to be our Savior who died, was buried, and rose again, it brings a person to a point of decision. Because there is an obstacle and a barrier that stands between a person in heaven. There is, there, is a, there is sin which causes a person to be condemned to hell. But God remedied that problem. He took care of it on the cross. He offered the gift of his son who offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And what God presents to him is that decision. Will you trust me? God's a gentleman. He's not going to force someone to. He says, Do you believe? will you believe? might remember from Tim Smith's presentation a couple weeks ago, a missionary to the Stan country, as we call it, his nephew, I think it's his nephew if I'm remembering right, um, Misha, was, uh, was not saved and did not get saved until his commander in the war in Ukraine died in his arms. And is that exactly what God used to bring him to Christ? You might remember that. Tim re 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 um, recanting that story, recounting that story, excuse me. And, and what Tim said, I don't know if he mentioned it in the, me in that, in the message on Sunday, but he had told me personally that he had witnessed to this commander a week earlier. And the commander said, I know what you're trying to tell me and I don't need it. And a week later he was dead. And apart from Christ, if he did not trust Christ before he died, he's in eternal hell. It's tragic, isn't it? So the Bible brings us that point of decision. Will we trust Christ? and accept the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, or we take our chances, as this fellow did. For the saved, confronting Christ brings us to, an, to this point of decision as well, doesn't it? Because God desires that we be disciples, that we follow him. And so as a Christian, we can decide to be wholehearted or not, to serve Christ or serve ourselves, to offer an occasional act of service to feel ourselves good or to, or, or to offer wholehearted service as a living sacrifice for him. Well, Timothy had proven his character, he says in verse 22. He says, you know his proven character. So, he says, so the Philippian church knew of Timothy. They knew his character. They heard about him. They knew he had that attitude of a servant's heart. And so he wasn't just a flash in a plan, a pan, in a pan. He didn't offer just you know, an occasional act of service to make him look good. Timothy was all in and he was known for it. And that's the reality that God is trying to develop in our lives. And this is normal. It's not normal for Christians to seek their own. 
That is not normal. Paul's not commending that. It's normal for us to seek the things of Christ. And as we study and learn the mind of Christ in the Word of God, and as we yield to the Spirit's work of teaching us of Christ and conforming us to His image, God changes us to this spiritual autopilot mentality, to where, we'll, to, where we, to, we have, to where we express the compassion of Christ in service towards others, to where we rejoice together as a church family as the gospel is advanced and God's redemptive purposes are being pursued. Timothy was a great example of one in whom God had developed that. He was a timid man, a young man, yet God had implanted this in his heart. The third example, role model, that we could hang on our wall when you go home today is Epaphroditus. He's an example of unselfish service, of commitment to the work of Christ. And the first thing we find here is his character described in verse 25. He says, He's, he said, Epaphroditus is my brother. He's my brother in Christ. He's a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, your messenger, which meant he was probably their pastor and the one who ministered to my needs. And so we find here this description of his character. He's a worker. He's a soldier. He's a servant. Wow. That's pretty cool, isn't it? That's a, that's a great example. He recognized that the work of Christ is just that. It's work. It takes effort. It takes investment. It takes focus. And he was a fellow worker in a service for Christ. He was a fellow soldier, which means that sometimes it's gonna be, you're going to get resistance. That's what that means, to be a soldier. That sometimes people are going to resist. Sometimes false teachers are going to oppose. It takes to be a soldier. Sometimes Satan is going to attack because Satan would always keep the saved defeated. And he is going to do his best to keep the saved to be ineffective. And he may do that through distractions or direct temptations or whatever it might be. He wants to put us out of commission. Years ago, I know the one, they, one of the, I knew some men in the military, and he said one of the best battle strategies was to wound a soldier because it took two or three others to take care of him while the battle was going on. And that's what Satan tries to do, wound us. And so, so, so there's resistance, and we can be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, as we're told in Ephesians chapter 6 in the passage of the warfare. But he's also a servant. He ministered, it says here, to my need. He administered to Paul while he was there. He helped support him in his work. Whatever that involved, we're not told, but he's willing to support Paul in, in, in the work of the gospel. We then find his heart described. In verse 26, he was longing for you all, and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. And we find in this passage that there's a whole lot of concern going on. Paul was concerned for him. The church was concerned for Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus was concerned for their concern. He was said, don't worry about me. I'm okay. Don't get upset. Don't stress over me. You know, and they didn't have, you know, smartphones and the Internet and instant news. You know, you know they, they, they traveled on foot, and that's why he was sent. That's why Paul often sent messengers to let people know that, hey, this, things are going well. This guy's okay. Things are good. Snail mail. It's even slower than snail mail. And so a lot of concern here, isn't there, going on. And, and, and Epaphroditus, in his unselfishness, wasn't expected to be ministered to when he was hurting. And that's one of the greatest dangers often in Christian experience is for Christians to expect. Why isn't anybody ministering to me? Why isn't anybody helping me? Why isn't anybody 
supporting me. Woe is me. And I'm not saying it's right to be neglected. But that's not the attitude of the heart of Epaphroditus. He would have said, don't, don't, don't worry about me. I'm fine. God called us to serve, not to be expect to be served. That's between a person and their God. And maybe it's tragic that sometimes people don't step up and serve. But again, that's between them and the Lord. Because the wonderful thing is, is that we have a good shepherd that is with us, will never fail us, never let us down, never forget us, and will strengthen us and comfort us. It's to him we look. And trust and descend whom he will, as he will, when he will. Epaphroditus didn't expect to be served. He was concerned for those that were concerned about him. And on top of that, we have a fourth party. God's concern. He had mercy upon him. He healed him. He restored him. And so God's heart is on display here as well. And it's really got the heart of God that was displayed to these other parties mentioned here. The third thing we come to in regards to Epaphroditus, then in verse 29, is his commitment that is praised here. Verse 29 says, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in, in esteem. That means put your old model on your wall. Put these verses on your wall. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. Epaphroditus, as our example, was had an unselfish commitment to serving others. To hold such men in high esteem, New American Standard Bible says high regard. ESV says to honor them. That's wow. That's definitely be the church's role models. That's what, that's what the Bible is saying here. And I think not only to be, our, to be our role models, but there's an element in scriptures that tells us that when God sends you and I men to serve, to teach, and to equip us, listen to them, respect them, follow them as they follow Christ. You know, we didn't cover this back in verse 16. We focused last time when we were in Philippians, on holding fast the word of life, but the end of the verse says, so that I might rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. And what Paul is saying here is that I don't want my labor to go wasted. Not for personal selfish gain, but for the sake of Christ. Because God's expectation, if you want to see this further, maybe catch my, my line of thinking here, go to Hebrews chapter 13. God's expectation is that when God establishes a church according to Ephesians 4 where he sends, where he gifts men, apostles, prophets, teachers to equip the saints so speaking the truth and love we can grow up together in him, that that's their role. Just as Paul said, my role is to support the sacrifice and service of your faith. God's expectation is that there's a response to the truth being taught. Verse 17 of Hebrews 13 says, Obey those, the idea is to follow them as they follow Christ. To follow, follow their teaching is the idea here. Follow their teaching. Obey those who have the rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. As those who must give an account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So when the people God sends your way, whoever it is, whether it is a friend or neighbor, a pastor, an elder, a teacher, a missionary, whatever it is, he says, let him give a good account. That's what Paul's saying back in, back in Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. He's saying, you know, I want to I rejoice 
in the day of Christ, that my labor has been fruitful, that you have responded as God intended. That's God's plan. You see, we, we sometimes forget that in the church, God is going to do what he says he's going to do. He is the great shepherd who sends under shepherds and other gifted men to the church to equip them. And God's expectation is, oh, I took the time to train, teach, and select, and send men, and they're not to be a, a right response, shouldn't they? And that's what Paul's saying here. And in regards to Epaphroditus, he says, hold such men in esteem. That's the same mentality. Hold them in esteem. Respect them. Give them high regard. Not that they're superheroes, but it's, but it's the opposite. And all these men, we see humble servants who put themselves under the needs of others. Why should we hold Epaphroditus in high esteem? Well, he worked for the sake of Christ. It says here in verse 30, because for the work of Christ, he came close to death. He was unselfish. He did not regard his life. He didn't count the cost. And boy, that's the enemy of service, isn't it? Counting the cost. Thirdly, in fact, counting the cost is what seeking your owners do. If I can put it that way. Thirdly, he was willingly made up for a people others did not provide. He supplied what was lacking in your service towards me. He was an amazing man empowered and trained by the grace of God, exhibiting the mind of Christ, he came close to death in working to support Paul, supplying what was lacking in their service. He worked for the sake of Christ. He did not regard his life, and he really made up for others what others did not provide. And that's a sad characteristic of the church today because Paul, I think, is again referring to those who seek their own. And there's always those in the church who are willing to work and those who are willing to let them. And God would develop that in all of us. This is a process which is going on. That's why God designed a church like this, where the Bible is open, the truth is spoken in love, hopefully. That's God's desire, so that we may grow up into him. And that's the key, grow up into him. Not just grow up, grow up into him. Become like him. Have his mind, his heart in our lives, so that we could be the servants that we ought to be. And so we have before us here three tremendous examples. Uh, we could have made a message out of each one of these, couldn't we have? But I wanted us just to see them in a package because that's what God gives us here in Philippians chapter 2. This is, a, is, a, is one of the most tremendous chapters in the scripture on serving Christ, what it mean, looks like to serve Christ. In Paul, we see, see an example of giving our all for the cause of Christ, being wholly surrendered to the will of God in our lives. In Timothy, we see spiritual genuineness driving service, a believer on autopilot. In Epaphroditus, we see one who is dying to self in his spiritual work ethic. He didn't count the cost in his commitment to the things of Christ and to the people God sent him to. These are, the rea these are realities. These are real men that God sets before you and I. An example of what God would do in our lives as he develops the heart of Christ in us, the attitude of exactual abandon to the things of God. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 4, maybe in closing here. 2 Corinthians 4, I think when we talked about service when, when Tim was here a couple weeks ago, talked about missionary work, we looked at the part of this chapter, but we didn't pick up the end of this chapter, which I think is fitting this morning. Verse 16, 2 Corinthians 4 says this, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. That sounds like Epaphroditus, doesn't it? Yet the inward man, the spiritual man, is being renewed day by day. How's that? By the grace and power of God. 
For our light affliction, notice light. It becomes light when you realize it's a price worth paying because there's a cost. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a more ex more, far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we do not look at the things which are seen but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. The things which are not seen are eternal. The things that are seen are temporary is where all that seek their own perish, isn't it? But the things which are not are eternal are where these three men, these examples fit in exhibiting the mind of Christ. And I think you forget that the chapter divisions weren't in the original scriptures, and I think the thought continues in chapter 5, verse 1, says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, our bodies, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hand, eternal in the heavens. That's an eternal perspective. See, God may call us to wear ourselves out for the cause of Christ, but we have an eternal home, an eternal home to look forward to. We rest then, we labor now. Isn't, isn't that the case? And that's what these three men are an example of. And all three of these men indicate to us that there is a cause worth living for and worth dying for. As God leads, we're in his hands. We're, we're protected and, and sustained by him. He just wants to develop in us the mindset of Christ as we yield to him. I don't know who said this, but a common phrase that came to mind here in closing, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of serving our Savior. Father, the world, even our own flesh, often looks at it as sacrifice and as risk, and there is cost, Father. We recognize, we look at the examples of the great people of God, whether in the Bible or whether in, our, in Christian history, there are those who have paid great prices in their suffering in their service for Christ. But Father, each one of them wouldn't undo what was done. They counted the privilege to, be, to, to make Christ known in the world around them, for people to see the person, the love, the grace, the kindness, the compassion of Christ, to hear the gospel of Christ, the good news of salvation. Father, there's a cause that you've called us to serve. And Father, thank you that you've done that in the sphere of our lives, Father, wherever we are, wherever we work, wherever we play, wherever we function as families and friends and fellow believers, Father, you've called us to promote Christ in those things. May we have those, that objective as a priority in our lives. May we live redemptively each and every day with that eternal perspective. So, Father, these are role models you've laid before us today, examples you'd have us to learn from, Father, and may, and may we allow your spirit uh, to impart these truths into our lives that the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, might be real in us. May our lives count for eternity. In Jesus' name.